Yet, Skinner and Quine do not have only different aims. If one examines Quine's views about causal explanation in psychology, their behavioristic theories turn out to be in fact incompatible, even if the physiological variables between stimulus and response were to be completely specified, Skinner maintains, the laws are to be found on a behavioral level, physiologists and neuroscientists can at best fill the temporal and spatial gap between a stimulus and a response. Quine, on the other hand, defends the opposite view. He believes that behavior ultimately requires a physiological, or better, a neurological, explanation instead. Rahak the Behaviorisms of Skinner and Quine pp.36-38 In his The Behaviorisms of Skinner and Quine Berhock argued that Skinner and Quine held diametrically opposed views on the relation of behavior to neuroscience. On Berhock's picture, Quine believed that a true explanation is at the neuroscientific level, while the behavioral explanation is just a shallow stopgap, whereas Skinner believed that there are behavioral laws independent of what we discover in neuroscience. There is a lot to recommend for Hawke's interpretation of the data. Skinner did sometimes argue that neuroscientific explanations can only serve to plug up some gaps in behavioral knowledge, but that the functional laws were the most important thing. The physiologist of the future will tell us all that can be known about what is happening inside the behaving organism. His account will be an important advance over a behavioral analysis, because the latter is necessarily historical that is to say, it is confined to functional relations showing temporal gaps. Something is done today which affects the behavior of an organism tomorrow. No matter how clearly that fact can be established, a step is missing, and we must wait for the physiologist to supply it. He will be able to show how an organism is changed when exposed to contingencies of reinforcement and why the changed organism then behaves in a different way, possibly at a much later date. What he discovers cannot invalidate the laws of a science of behavior, but it will make the picture of human action more nearly complete. About Behaviorism P. 237. The above quote from Skinner's 1974 about behaviorism is an interesting perspective on Skinner's take on the relation between neuroscience and behavioral science. Skinner is arguing future neuroscientists will make important advances over behavioral science. This indicates that for Skinner, behavioral science isn't entirely autonomous, and that behaviorists can learn something from neuroscientific studies. Skinner is arguing that behavioral science, like the science of natural selection is necessarily historical. If you want to establish a behavioral law you will need to do experiments that are historical in nature. These experiments will typically involve studying the three-term contingency, antecedent, behavior, consequence, to pick out a behavioral law. But with a sufficiently advanced neuroscience we may be able to discover the chemical laws that underlie the causal regularities discovered by the behavioral scientist. These discoveries in neuroscience won't refute the discovered behavioral regularities but they will be an advance on our overall picture of the behavior of organisms. However it is difficult to see how Skinner's above approach is incompatible with Quine's approach. Consider the following statement of Quine's, which Verhoek quotes. An explanation, not the deepest one, but of a shallower kind, is possible at the purest behavioral level. One can hope to find, and I think one does find, behavioral regularities. Quine 2008 pages 69-81 On the face of it Quine and Skinner seem to be singing from the same hymn sheet, we can discover behavioral laws, but ultimately we should be able to discover more fundamental neuroscientific laws. The obvious rejoinder to this is that while the above poem may indicate that Quine and Skinner were in agreement on this topic, a closer look at Quine indicates that he held views which are much stronger than the above code indicates, in numerous different places he argued that behavior is not the explanation, 
but something that must be explained by more fundamental sources for example physiology, Quine 1998 p. 94. However, even the above claim by Quine finds resonance in the writings of Skinner. Eventually, we may assume, the facts and principles of psychology will be reducible not only to physiology but through biochemistry to physics and subatomic physics. Skinner, Cumulative Record p. 302. It should be noted that Skinner wasn't always consistent in his views on this topic. As we saw above Skinner sometimes argued that behavioral laws are independent of neural discoveries, though they may be enriched by them. But above he is arguing that behavioral laws can ultimately be reduced to neuroscientific laws. The same inconsistency seems to dog Quine's explanations of behavioral regularities. In some places he is arguing that behavioral regularities exist, but in other places he seems to think that such regularities are unimportant other than as pointers as to what is going on in the brain. There is obviously no contradiction in believing that regularities occur and also believing that such regularities are unimportant. But there is a tension in the two beliefs. There are many behavioral laws that have been experimentally and observationally studied over the last few decades. An extinction burst is a clear behavioral regularity. Applied behavioral analysis is the most effective scientific treatment that currently exists for managing challenging behavior. In a hospital setting, where some patients with severe learning difficulties exhibit dangerous challenging behavior, such as, a child punching themselves repeatedly in the head, analysts must try to discover what reinforcements are maintaining such behaviors. To do this Skinner's three-term contingency is typically applied. The analyst will carefully record the instance before the behavior occurred, the behavior itself, and the consequences which immediately follow the behavior. Through this process he can discover which procedures are reinforcing the behavior. By removing these reinforcers the analyst can extinguish the behavior. The process of functional extinction has been verified in many studies and across many species, applied behavior analysis p. 473. By removing the reinforcers controlling the behavior, the analyst can make the behavior extinct. However, prior to extinction there is an increase in the said behavior occurring, and this is called an extinction burst, Lerman, Iwata and Wallace, 1999, Doe and Iwata, 1994. The occurrence of extinction bursts are well established in basic behavioral research. When Quine says that there are behavioral regularities but that the fundamental regularities occur at the physiological level it is hard to parse what he means. In the case of extinction bursts we have clear regularities, understanding the physiology better would add to our knowledge of what is going on. But it is hard to see how the underlying physiology is any more real than the behavioral regularity which has been discovered, and which can be predicted and controlled using behavioral science. When we discover behavioral laws, as Quine admits that we do, then these laws are real patterns that have been discovered, we can learn more about the underlying causal sequences that make these patterns occur, but such real patterns are more than just pointers towards the underlying physiology they are law-like facts in their own right. Thus far we have seen that Quine and Skinner are both a bit inconsistent in their views on the relation of relation of behavior to physiology. There is a side of Skinner, and of Quine, which comes close to endorsing a kind of crude reductionism, where the ultimate explanation is at the physiological level, with the eventual aim being to give our explanations in terms of basic physics. However, this preference for the underlying physiology as the real explanation is much more prominent in Quine's philosophy than in Skinner's. The general thrust of Skinner's philosophy is that there are real behavioral laws and while neuroscientific data enrich our behavioral laws, they cannot supplant them. 
Quine seems to acknowledge that we have behavioral laws but argues that these laws are just pointers we can use to get at the real data, the neuroscientific data. Quine's position on this subject isn't entirely inconsistent with Skinner's. Both admit that behavioral laws exist, and both admit that the underlying physiology can enrich our behavioral laws. To the extent that they disagree it is on the status of the behavioral laws, Skinner takes the importance of these behavioral laws seriously, while Quine argues they are mere pointers to the real data, the underlying physiological facts. Where Quine and Skinner's views diverge it is pretty obvious that Skinner's views on the nature of laws of behavior are more accurate than Quine's are. The laws of behavior that are studied by behavioral scientists do much more than merely point towards underlying physiological states they are tools that are useful in the prediction and control of the behavior of both human and non-human animals. The success of disciplines such as applied behavioral analysis are clear evidence that Quine's dismissal of behavioral laws as mere pointers towards underlying physiology is very wrong-headed. Aside from behavioral analysts using and discovering behavioral laws, behavioral laws have proven to be useful tools for neuroscientists to use. In the years since Quine and Skinner were writing, conditioning has become a vital tool which neuroscientists use to understand the circuitry of the brain. Classical conditioning has proven more useful than operant conditioning in these experiments. And work by my laboratory and the laboratories of colleagues using Pavlovian fear conditioning was very successful in achieving, in a few short years, what instrumental avoidance conditioning had failed to do identification of the brain areas and connections between them that constituted what came to be known as the brain's fear system. Ledoux, Anxiety P. 31. While classical conditioning has proven a useful tool for neuroscientists to use when trying to understand how the brain works, these studies have also revealed some useful information about the neuroscientific basis of types of classical conditioning. In his lab, neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux has done some groundbreaking work on the neuroscience of fear, and has used classical conditioning as a tool. His research not only helps us understand fear but also helps us understand the circuitry of fear conditioning. One of the targets suggested by the tracing studies was the amygdala. When we lesioned this area, or disconnected it from the auditory system, the fear-conditioned responses were eliminated. Within the amygdala, we also found an area that receives auditory CS input, the lateral amygdala, LA, and connects with an area, the central amygdala, CEA, that sends outputs to downstream targets that separately control freezing and blood pressure-conditioned responses. Further, we were able to locate cells in the LA input region that received both the auditory CS and the shock US. This was an especially important discovery because the integration of the CS and the US at the cellular level was thought to be required for fear conditioning to occur. After the circuit and cellular changes involved in the process was identified, we turned to the molecular mechanisms in the LA that underlie the learning and expression of conditioned fear, many of which were the same, as those discovered by Candle and others in vertebrates. Ledoux, Anxious P. 30. Research like this is important because it provided experimental evidence of the underlying circuitry involved in fear conditioning. This is only a small piece of the puzzle. Classical conditioning is a much more general process than the conditioning that occurs in fear conditioning. There is more research needed into how general the neural processes are which underlie classical conditioning in general. But research is proceeding at breakneck speed and we can only hope that these general problems will eventually be solved. Numerous studies by my laboratory and others have confirmed that when the CS is paired with an aversive US, LA neurons do respond more strongly to the CS. Further, 
We and others have identified many molecules that contribute to the induction of these changes during learning and the stabilization of these changes in the storage of memory. Once the associative memory has been formed, the CS can, on its own, strongly activate LA neurons. IBID P. 95. Why classical conditioning is more useful than operant conditioning is not entirely clear. In general classical conditioning is a type of learning that is useful in helping an animal passively learn from environmental experiences, and operant conditioning is more suitable for an animal to learn as it actively moves about its environment. The different functions of classical conditioning and operant conditioning may explain their relative uses for neuroscientists. A passive form of learning would obviously be more useful to in studies involving neuroscientific instruments. The Evolution of Conditioning When discussing the work of the Ledoux lab he made a distinction between classical and operant conditioning in terms of their utility for neuroscientific research. This distinction is well established in the literature, since about Skinner's time. But there is some evidence that while operant and classical conditioning are not identical they may both rely on the same underlying neural architecture. In their recent paper, Classical and Operant Conditioning, Evolutionary Distinct Strategies Bronfman et al. argue that classical conditioning and operant conditioning are different facets of the same underlying associative learning system, Bronfman et al. p. 34. They suggest three criteria to use to help discover whether operant and classical conditioning are separate capacities or if they rely on the same underlying architecture. 1. Functional Distinctiveness which can be inferred by double dissociations. 2. Taxonomic distinctiveness, members of one animal taxa will have one system, CC, while members of another animal taxa will have another system, OC. 3. Adaptive evolutionary distinctiveness, distinct forms of learning should have distinct evolutionary rationales, IBID P.35. In answer to their first question they note that there has been some experimental research indicating dissociation where through brain damage a creature can learn through operant conditioning, and not classical conditioning. Brames et al. 2008, Lorenzetti 2006, Ausland et al. 2007. However they note that there are only a few experiments indicating this dissociation is possible and that these studies haven't been replicated. So before drawing any large-scale conclusions more research is needed. On question 2 they claim that there's no evidence of any animal who possesses one type of conditioning but not the other. Again research is in its infancy and more research is recommended. On the third question they argue that given that OC and CC are paradigm domain general learning processes it is unlikely that theorists will be able to construct a plausible evolutionary rationale of them being selected for in different way. On the whole then a theorist who wanted to argue for two distinctive processes underlying OC and CC could appeal to the few experiments indicating that dissociation of the odd and CC is possible. But overall there would be very little evidence to support their views on the topic. So Bronfman et al. argue that despite the consensus in behavioral science there is little evidence to suggest that we should adopt an absolute distinction between classical and operant conditioning. With new evidence chipping away at the neuroscientific nature of conditioning, with cross-comparative and experimental data being used to discover if classical conditioning and operant conditioning use similar underlying neural circuitry, and even some data on the evolution of conditioning, we are learning much more about conditioning than either Quine or Skinner knew. And so far everything we have learned seems to support the less reductive position than the one Quine proposed. We're learning more and more about conditioning and its neural basis, but this hasn't come close to reducing the behavioral regularities to mere pointers to underlying states. Rather despite what we have learned behavioral analysts are today are still using behavioral laws, some of which were discovered by Skinner, 
to shape the behavior of human and non-human animals. There is no reason at present to follow Quine in treating behavioral laws as some kind of shallow explanation. The sense of fundamental Quine typically appeals to is one that relies on a strong sense of physicalism. Nothing happens in the world, not a flutter of an eyelid, not the flicker of a thought, without some redistribution of micro-physical states. Quine Goodman's Ways of World-Making p. 98. Quine's above statement that all forms of behavior depend on some kind of underlying microphysical process is relatively uncontroversial. It is hard to imagine a behavioral scientist who would object to the claim that any behavioral laws discovered will have an explanation in terms of underlying physical processes. Likewise, it is hard to imagine an evolutionary scientist who would deny that all examples of natural selection have underlying physical causes. But it obviously doesn't follow that because a process is causally dependent on underlying physical states that the process is shallow piece of information that will ultimately be explained away. There are real patterns that exist in the world that will be missed out on if we try to understand something at the wrong level of abstraction. If we stick to just understanding a portion of the world in terms of subatomic particles and forces acting on them then our explanation will be incomplete, such an explanation will be entirely blind to things like sexual selection. The fact that sticking entirely to fundamental physics will blind one real patterns at the evolutionary level obviously doesn't mean that physics is irrelevant to evolutionary theory. Physics can provide constraints to what type of creatures can be built by natural selection, see for example work on scaling laws and invariants in animal locomotion Bejan and Martin, 2006 and Trevision et al. 2006, on the physics of bird songs. Now suppose one adopts the Quinian approach to evolutionary explanations of the origins of life, and argues that explanations in terms of natural selection are shallow, the real explanation is at the level of basic physics or chemistry. As we saw above if we adopted this approach in its reductionistic sense we would be ignoring real patterns in the world and explaining away patently real phenomena. A less radical approach would be to accept that physics can constrain and inform explanations in evolutionary science but not supplant. When it comes to behavioral science and biology things are similar. The degree to which Quine and Skinner disagree on the status behavioral laws and their relation to neuroscience, isn't always clear. But it is clear that any radical reductionism that tries to reduce behavioral laws to mere pointers to underlying neural states is untenable.